You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. There was a bombing a day going on. It was very, very common. The rage represented everybody, but that particular tactic, we couldn't go down that road with half-baked thoughts and romantic illusions. Former 60s radical and fugitive Kathy Wilkerson, today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, the latter half of the 1960s was, to say the least, a turbulent time in America. Anti-war demonstrations were escalating. The civil rights movement and the women's rights movement were growing rapidly. As the government tried to rein in all the chaos, it simply made many of the movements even more radical. As the decade drew to a close, violence and bombings became almost commonplace, almost daily occurrences. Now, among those caught up in this maelstrom was the young Kathy Wilkerson. In her early 20s, she joined the Weather Underground Organization, often known simply as Weatherman. Now, Wilkerson's father owned a townhouse in New York's Greenwich Village. And before long, Wilkerson and some of her fellow Weather Underground members had turned that townhouse into a bomb factory. And on March 6, 1970, one of their bombs went off in the basement of the home, destroying the home and killing three people. But Wilkerson and fellow weatherman Kathy Bedeen escaped with their lives, but from that day forward became fugitives from the FBI. Wilkerson even wound up on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Now, she was on the run for 10 years before finally turning herself in in 1980 and serving a few months in prison. Ultimately, she even became a high school math teacher. Now, finally, in 2007, Kathy Wilkerson wrote her memoir, a book called Flying Close to the Sun, and that's when I met her. So, here now from 2007, Kathy Wilkerson. Why did you wait so long to tell your story? Um, well, there's a small matter of having children and raising children and working full-time and all of those things. And I actually started it about seven years ago. Um, but it was working in education and learning the language of change that we have used and developed in the education world. Um, that helped me to write the story. Were you also inspired in any way by the fact that we're kind of back in an unpopular war again in a situation that you found yourself in a generation ago? Um, well, yes, although I had been intending to write the book when I got the chance for 20 years, so it was just a matter of getting myself situated in such a way that I could write it because I felt like the story about the 60s and the 70s was a, is a critical story. An enormous amount happened that inf influences today in a lot of ways. Um, and that women's voices were not being heard in the telling of that story. And so women's role and women's approach to the 60s was being underrepresented. So I figured I would contribute one story, one woman's story to that. In your experience, was there still kind of a 50s uh, feminist kind of thinking imposed on 60s radical organizations? In other words, did they just not have a place for the girls to play? Well, it was contradictory. The movement provided enormous opportunities for women in some ways. And so uh, in, in my upraising, I was given the choice of being a teacher, a secretary, or a nurse. Um, and 
whereas in the movement, we could be anything. Now, it is true that we were relegated to washing dishes and typing other people's letters and doing all that kind of work. Um, but that was okay as long as we also had a voice in the council of decision-making. And it was, it was the struggle to gain that voice that really drove me individually and then I think drove women, the women's movement itself to erupt. As you write about your early life in this book, it's apparent that from an early age you were very interested in, very absorbed by American history, that the ideals of the founding fathers, the, the ideals of democracy and, and you know, what, Amer what America was supposed to stand for. Was that what, in, it, in its own way, inspired you to, to join the weatherman? Um, well, I was a late reader, but once I learned how to read, I worked my way through the landmark biography series for children. And I read dozens of those biographies of historical figures. Um, and I was very inspired by the mythology of democracy and the mythology of the United States. Um, but I kept looking for the fairness in the world today and how did it match the mythology. And it was that dissonance that um, between what the mythology said, which I thought was fabulous, and the and the reality that I saw that drove me to learn more and do more. I was going to say, it was fascinating to read this. I, I could see it in you, this growing disillusionment, anger, frustration, and and bitterness, actually, if, if I may call it that, at what you were seeing happening to African Americans, to Americans being sent to die in Vietnam. This Did it make you angry? Well, it certainly made me angry, and at first it was the stupidity of it, like why were we into this war and why couldn't people just get it together to implement equality? But as the 60s progressed and the government's COINTELPRO strategy really took off and there started to be uh, attacks on the leadership that people who tried to change the world were physically attacked and sometimes killed, um, by 68, when Kennedy was killed, King was killed, um, several of the Black Panther Party uh, leaders were set up and some were killed um, as part of this COINTELPRO program, then the anger began to change its quality. And as the anti-war movement became a dominant, changed the sentiment around the war and the government didn't change the policy, uh, that anger did begin to get bitter. I was reading, I was fascinated to see the kind of vetting you were put through. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, was it when you joined SDS, when you joined Weatherman, when they kind of questioned you and kind of poked you? And uh, I gather that you were not quite prepared to be, to be challenged quite so much. Well, it wasn't the challenge, it was the unfairness of the challenge. And it was definitely Weatherman. Um, SDS was a wide open, chaotic organization. Um, Weatherman was one of many small groups that came out of, survived out of SDS's dissolution. And SDS dissolved only because it had become so huge, it had no viable structure. And at a certain point, it became dysfunctional. Um, but Weatherman was very effective at voicing anger. It was, um, at the same time, like any hierarchical organization, and Weatherman was definitely hierarchical, uh, it assumed a cultish quality. And so uh, whether it's 
corporate America or religion or politics, hierarchy can lead to cultism under certain circumstances. And Weatherman was not defined by that, but it had those qualities. So it wasn't as simple as just popping into one of the monthly meetings and saying, hi guys, here I am. No, there were entry rituals. One had to disavow one's previous political independence and um, submit to the discipline of the leadership. Um, so it, it was, it, we still struggle with this balance between efficiency and democracy. And that's a good struggle and one that should never be resolved. But in the 60s, with so much happening and so much death around us, the tables tilted to people wanting to be efficient in ending the war. And that drive to efficiency led people to political philosophies that were very hierarchical. Did, was there no irony seen at the time in fighting violence with violence? Well, it was a hot topic, uh, no doubt. But um, we were trying to figure out what's, whether it was possible to change the government through democratic means. And if the government systematically kills off the leadership of a change movement, it seemed like it would not be possible. And our, our historical reference was Nazi Germany in 38 and 39. And what would we have done if we had been there? Would we have gone along with it and been good Germans? Or would we have joined the resistance? And so it was that analogy that provoked us to begin to think about clandestinity. And if you think about clandestinity, you think about hierarchy. Did Weatherman see itself as the resistance? I think very much so. I think that was one of the major models that, that Weatherman used. Um, now, it also had uh, a kind of bizarre uh, strategy that of kind of recruiting. If, if we had to fight the government, then it meant recruiting young guys, and it was very much of a male thing, who were willing to fight and going out on the street and picking fights and hoping that they, other guys would be impressed and join Weatherman. Now, this is not a winning strategy for revolution or anything else. After this short break, Kathy Wilkerson recalls the event that turned her into a fugitive. Now back to my 2007 conversation with Kathy Wilkerson. You open the book with probably one of the most notorious episodes in your personal story, in the story of the Weatherman, the, the townhouse explosion in New York, 1970. Do you recall it that vividly? I mean, is it something that you, the, the kind of thing that you relive from time to time? Well, I think many people from the 60s, certainly Vietnam veterans, but many other people, certainly the Black Panthers, have those moments of stress. I mean, that in the same, in post-traumatic stress disorder, you relive those moments for the rest of your life. So that particular moment of realizing that we had embarked on this road that made no sense and questioning myself about how did I end up here and what were the choices I had made that led me there. Um, certainly was a traumatic moment. And of course, given that three very close friends died, it added to the trauma. You were then about the same age that my daughters are now. 
And I'm trying to imagine what, I mean, you had experienced so much at that point, and then also now to be in the middle of a house that is literally exploding around you. My heart went out to you as I'm reading this story. Well, we, we all um, had in, um, enormous opportunities to grow quickly in the movement. And so it was commonplace. I became editor of New Left Notes at 21. Um, and it was commonplace for people to take on enormous responsibility and huge workloads um, in the movement at that time. And we also had a wonderful time. So then, you know, by 25, I seemed like a, a, a wizened vet, veteran. <laughs> and you couldn't trust anybody over 30? We'd, I didn't know anyone over 30. <laughs> Well, uh, now you also are, are careful to point out in this book that this is your story and that other people, including Kathy Bedeen, should she ever write her story, will have a, their own version of events. Yes, so I think that's really important. People have a tendency in writing stories uh, from a first-hand perspective to speak for other people. And many people have spoken for me in the past incorrectly. So this, this striving to have a voice and to be responsible for one's own voice not only motivated me in the early 60s, but has continued to motivate me and is one of the reasons why I wrote the book. But I don't want to speak for other people. And you include incidents from other people's lives in your own story, and you don't have the opportunity to give the context for their life. And so I think it's very important to be clear that I'm telling this from my perspective and offering that. And if people want to do a thorough study of the period, they need to read other perspectives. You know, also, I'm sure it has occurred to you many, many times over the last few years, if you were caught with a a pipe bomb in your basement today and what looked like a factory for pipe bomb, you'd be probably in Guantanamo tomorrow, wouldn't you? Uh, it was, it's a very, very different time. When, when, we, when the townhouse happened, there was a bombing a day going on. It was very, very common. And we were not the leaders in that. We were the followers. Um, and, and really, after the townhouse happened, that whole phenomena decreased dramatically. Um, so it became an iconic moment in a way that it symbolized that the rage represented everybody, but that particular tactic, we couldn't go down that road with half-baked thoughts and romantic illusions. And that it was a very uh, sort of macho kind of posturing. I do hope you'll forgive me what asking for asking what may be a rather pedantic question, but if you had it to do all over again, would you change anything? I've tried to get up every day of my life and do the best that I could do. And, and that's all I can do. And so in retrospect, I can look back and see, you know, uh, how I acted without enough information on any number of instances, um, as recently as like a week ago. But if... But all I can say is I tried to do the best I could do. And so would I change anything about that? No. Without the loss of life, do you regret anything that you were involved in and anything that you did? Well, I think Weatherman did not have a viable strategy ever. From the day of its inception, I think 
The 69 period of Weatherman was incredibly destructive to the people within it and to our circles of friends. And it didn't accomplish anything politically other than to voice that rage, which it did. And in doing so, spoke for tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. So it's why Weatherman, despite the fact that it was a very small group and completely uh, contradictory and damaging and without strategy has become iconic because it did more than anything else represent the vast rage that people were feeling and represented our incapacity to think through a really smart reasoned strategy to do something about it that would make a difference. Very often history is written as if people are hatched with a full-blown sense of politics and that it that it certainly excludes a lot of people, and particularly in excludes women who have a much more developmental sense of history and of our own history. So I think the book is more than anything else an argument for people to participate in the public forum. It's how I got drawn into the public forum, why having a voice in the public forum is so critical. Whether that's a small local forum or a national forum, it doesn't matter. But to be aware of and have a way to speak on and engage with the critical issues of the day, I think is absolutely essential if our democracy is going to survive. Kathy Wilkerson is 78 now. She lives in New York. And you can get a copy of Flying Close to the Sun by Kathy Wilkerson by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And by the way, heardeverything.com is where you'll also find my 1991 conversation with Black Panther Party co-founder Bobby Seale. My philosophy was not just black power. It was a all power to all the people uh, philosophy. And I still exist and stand on the principles of being a, what I call a revolutionary humanist. And my 1994 interview with the lawyer who represented many 60s radicals, William Kunstler. Pickets around my house, bullets flying through the downstairs window, bullets in the mail, hate messages on my answering machine. If you're going to do these kind of cases, you've got to anticipate and expect that and hope to live through it. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on every major podcast platform. Thanks so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the iconic figure in the civil rights movement who started a tradition in the 1980s that continues to this day, the Black Family Reunion. My 1993 conversation with the longtime president of the National Council of Negro Women, Dorothy Height. Too much is said about the African-American family as problems. It's as if we were a problem people when we're simply people with problems. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.